0: Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Jason Reitman's new comedic drama, Tully. The film stars Charlize Theron as a New York suburban mom whose life is slowly being drained away by the challenges of raising two kids and a newborn. When she is sent help in the form of a gifted night nanny named Tully, she is at first hesitant to accept the assistance, but comes to form a unique bond with the thoughtful and surprising young woman. In addition to Tully, Mr. Reitman's credits include the feature films Men, Women, and Children, Labor Day, Young Adult, and Thank You for Smoking, the pilot for the series Casual, and episodes of the series The Office. Mr. Reitman was nominated for the DGA's Feature Film Award as well as an Academy Award for his 2009 feature Up in the Air and garnered an Oscar nomination for directing the 2007 film Juno. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Reitman spoke with director Karen Kusama about filming Tully. During their conversation, Mr. Reitman discusses how he wanted to make a movie that felt like a lenticular poster, notes that the film marks his third collaboration with screenwriter D'Alpo Cody, and explains his process of photoboarding during pre-production.
1: I love this theater. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a great one. Um why don't I just start with the most basic question and get it out of the way, which is just the birth of the project and how you decided to do it. Uh
1: well, um you know, uh I met Diablo 12 years ago now. And when I met her what I, you know, what I didn't what I couldn't have known at the time was that I was meeting uh a lifelong storytelling partner. I mean, it was the kind of beginning of a marriage. It was the first date that led mm. to, you know, a marriage. And uh, and and these three films that we've made uh, together uh, so far that I've directed, um, Juno, Young Adult, and Tully, um, have been part of uh, kind of a continuity. I mean, all of the films have been about uh, growing up. You know, Jun- Juno is a movie about mm-hmm. growing up too fast and young adult is about growing up a little too slow (laughs) and and this one's about the moment when you become a parent and you realize you kind of have to grow up and you start to think of your younger self almost as a different person Mm. and what would it be like uh, if you actually got the chance to say goodbye to that person Mm. Uh, so Diablo called me up uh, one night and said I think I have our next movie and she described this in two sentences And I said, yeah, you got to write that. And somehow, and I think this will infuriate you as much as it does me, (laughs) she wrote it in six weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got an email one night, and it was the script. It was the first draft. It was also our shooting draft. (laughs) And I I read it, and I fell in love with it, and I forwarded it to Charlize.
2: Wow. And did you have any anticipation that there was going to be this sort of magical... Element to it, or did that take you by surprise well, even as you were reading it?
1: That was part of the two-line pitch. The two lines were: um, uh, a woman about to have her, a woman has her third child and is going through postpartum, and a younger version of her comes to save her.
2: Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. And so then, as you were prepping the movie and thinking about how to direct it, were you ever thinking of? the concept of the hook or the twist, or or was that kind of less important to Every you? Every
1: moment. I interesting, mean, interesting. I mean, I mean uh, and it's funny because, I mean, I'd done a little bit of this before with Up in the Air. You know, Up in the Air has this, you know, surprise when George gets to Vera's door at the end of the movie. So, uh, And that was a real thrill. That was always exciting having uh, on that film, always kind of knowing that and working that as we went. And I remember even on that movie one day, um uh where there had been uh some extras that had been with us for a lot of the film but had not read the whole script and they were really falling for george and vera and i remember Mm -hmm. when they read the sides for the next day when we were going to realize that she wasn't available and they came up to me they were very upset and very hurt and i was like oh good it's working um (laughs) uh but on this one I, you know, I always thought of it as, you know those ventricular posters where you look at the the, the poster and then if you just move your head two inches, the, like the image shifts into something else. Mm-hmm. I always thought that's what this movie is. It's a movie where you think you're watching one movie and then in the final moments of the movie you realize you've actually been watching two movies simultaneously. You just didn't, you weren't aware of the other one mm-hmm. that was happening. And that became a very exciting uh uh, a very exciting puzzle to figure out with every department, uh, and it worked its way into um, not only kind of the, the obvious things of just uh, how do Ron and Mackenzie uh, and Charlie's kind of coexist and mm-hmm. make sense, mm-hmm. but things like uh, body language. Uh, uh, the first time Tully shows up at the door, she knocks on the door. The next time, she just is able to open the door. The next time, she just kind of enters from stage left. Very often, Charlize will start in one uh, piece of... Li- she'll be in a certain body language, in a literal, specific chair, and by the end of the scene, Mackenzie will have replaced her in the same exact body language, in the same chair. Uh, when they go up to... Uh, when she's putting on the waitress outfit and they go upstairs, they start as two people, and as they come around and they go behind the yellow glass and mm-hmm. go upstairs, they literally silhouette into one human being. Mm-hmm. Um, all of Mackenzie's clothes were... Uh, wardrobe of characters that marla would have loved when she was mm. uh in her 20s uh the first outfit is Winona mm. Ryder from Reality Bites mm-hmm. the, the or the you know the red tank top yep. and the jeans and then uh and then it cycles through uh like a Kate Moss Calvin Klein ad and uh Claire Danes on uh, my so called life and a uh, few others so uh or musically the the this the first song the song that Mackenzie plays in the bar Uh, at the end, uh, on the jukebox, and and Marla goes, oh my God, that's my favorite song, is the song that's playing in the coffee shop at the beginning when Violet walks in, Ah. uh, creating the question of whether Violet was even there in the beginning of the movie or whether that music triggered the first idea that centered Uh down this kind of imaginary journey.
2: And so as you were working with Charlize and Mackenzie, were you talking to them essentially as one character or were you <laughs> or were you were you really saying you are two delineated people
1: i mean uh it'd be great right if i just to Mackenzie, i was like you're not even here so i'm um, <laughs> uh, um uh i mean did
2: you find you wanted to be tricky or did did simplifying things help or there was
1: one real keynote for i mean for Charlize... Uh, and and you've worked with her, you kind and Mackenzie, uh, uh, yes, sorry, And they're both uh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, um, Charlize, it was very easy. Charlize, it was uh, not really easy, but uh, the she is she wants to dig in and find authenticity. So badly that if you give her the opportunity, she will go further than any other actor, and so that—that's what that was about. And I'm a parent; and she's a parent, and that we, we kind of knew what her journey was there. With Mackenzie, we found something very, very early on that was a great, you know, way in uh, which is when people watch this movie for the second time, or third or fourth when they which buy I you know in the theater and the theater. <laughs> You start to, you watch it from a whole other point of view. Now you're watching Mackenzie show up at the door and she's wondering, who do I become? Mm-hmm. Who do I marry? What do my kids look like? Uh, it, it, how is my marriage? Are we talking? Are we happy? What do I do for a living? Uh, and and so Mackenzie's direction was always that. Mm-hmm. And, and what's wonderful Mackenzie, uh, as you do know, is her eyes mm-hmm. are filled with infinite curiosity mm-hmm. and intelligence. And her acting choices always surprise you. So uh, I felt like uh, as soon as she kind of locked into that direction, she knew exactly where to go.
2: Mm -hmm. And did you talk about the idea of the spirited Marlo that she was, or were you just really open to whatever kind of, because there were so many lovely startling moments where she sort of does something just unexpected Mm -hmm. and seeing the film a second time, I'm really aware that that's the kind of um, the lighter side of when Charlize would say something unexpected that kind of takes that dark dive, you know, and I felt like, oh, that's such a nice, um, such a thread Mm -hmm. to kind of keep alive
1: and i mean that's the writing but that's diablo and and Mm -hmm. i think diablo knew from the beginning that we should be getting clues to who this other person was and and again and it gets back to that the idea of there's a moment and it it often happens when we have children that our younger self seems to become a completely different human being and Mm -hmm. when you think about yourself and younger it's like thinking about a different person Mm -hmm. and and of course mcginzi is that person, and so we're seeing someone who walks through the door, who at first seems like a foreign entity, mm-hmm. who is completely different from Marlowe, but then, you're right, uh, you start to realize they're both naming odd, intricate facts, mm-hmm. you know, or they both have dark senses of humor, um, and you start to think about her life in Bushwick, which you then get this kind of peek into, and you're like, oh, oh, that's right, she was a completely different person, mm-hmm. um, and, and we all develop this kind of, sense of shame that's kind of, it's like a two way street. It's like one, I can't believe that's who I was, but also I can't believe who I became. If my younger self saw me now, mm. they would be embarrassed for who they became. <laughs> and it's this kind of mutual forgiveness that happens by the end.
2: Yeah. I mean it's a beautiful the idea of um also just simply caring for oneself mm-hmm. as a as a narrative um is it's it's extremely it's extremely unique, very distinctive story. And when you were making it, were you looking for other reference points, or did you find that that's there just kind of aren't aren't many? I mean, were there movies that influenced you in some way toward this film?
1: Uh, yeah, I. I n- not. It's really. a tough one. It, 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 it was <laughs> I would more. Think. It was more people. You know, uh, and I am definitely on the outside of this as a man. Hmm. Uh, I think. Fathers like to do about 5% to 2% of the work and take 100% of the credit (laughs) and feel very good about that. Uh, But I think it was a combination of Diablo and Charlize and a small group of women who I actually uh, sent questionnaires to Mm -hmm. about their first months of being a mother. Mm. And I said, uh, whatever you're willing to share with me about, and there was kind of a list of questions. One of them is actually here tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and and it was interesting. So, and two things came out of that. One, a lot of rich detail, things like uh, the amount of parents who have dropped their cell phones on their children's faces <laughs> is an alarmingly high number. Um, <laughs> but also, Uh, I was amazed by how much they shared Mm -hmm. and I was I immediately got this idea that oh you're not talking to anyone about this and there's something very lonely and scary about that feeling in the middle of the night and Mm -hmm. while I had some of that I remembered you know my daughter's 11 now but I remembered that waking up in the middle of the night and having moments of feeling clueless and making feeling like oh my god Sam I, I didn't get the guidebook, and I don't know how to do this, and and that kind of shame that comes from feeling like you're not doing the best job. And I think I felt a small percentage of that, but what I was reading in these pages was a much larger, overwhelming feeling. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that was a bigger influence on the overall tone of the film and what we were going after Mm -hmm. than another film. I I think we wanted to uh, try to portray parenthood in as accurate a way as possible. And, and not be uh, like another filmic comedy where there's a dad who picks up the baby and the baby pees on him and you, know, right. you get a big laugh.
2: It's funny that you bring up the the loneliness and the sort of frightening quality of the middle of the night because the only stylistic counterpart I could come up with in 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 thinking about this movie and how it relates to other movies is sort of a, a final key scene in Pan's Labyrinth when you realize that the the young female protagonist has has just been talking to no one in a cave instead of mm-hmm. a, a monster right, and right. and this idea that you know the middle of the night for for Tully is this kind of moment of having to talk to herself you know talk right. her through something right. um it, it it was it's interesting to think that you know you were sort of as a filmmaker having to sort of make up your own rules did it feel like that while you were doing it?
1: I honestly, I, I feel like, and you know, I work with almost all the same people, yep. uh, and we've been on this journey together. So I, I feel like there's a there's a style that we did Juno and Young Adult, and I feel like this continues mm. in that style. It's a kind of it's a fairly loose shooting style. It's fairly handheld. Very warm color palette. Um, uh, the, the, each one have become progressively less contrasty and Mm -hmm. we're going for a very soft look and there's a an attempt to make the films feel as though the director's hands are not on the camera Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of a general direction I've been trying to go as a filmmaker but Mm -hmm. that that has definitely been the feel of these films Um, uh, but other than that while on other films will you know Eric my DP and I will sit and watch film after film and Mm -hmm. talk about What they were and certainly for the front runner Mm -hmm. my next film we were doing that constantly Mm -hmm. and on this one i think there was a sense of all right i think we know what we know what world this film lives in and the work we have to do now is on character work and on making the puzzle work uh and and making sure the cast and crew feel like they can provide more details to make parenthood look Realistic. I think it was our assistant prop person who mm-hmm. said, "Oh, you know, we used to put our baby on the dryer to help it fall asleep." And I'd mm-hmm. never heard that one before. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really good. So I was constantly looking <laughs> for that kind of detail.
2: It's funny though that you, you that your overarching kind of camera aesthetic is to sort of not feel the camera, and yet, seeing this film the second time, I was really struck by the the framing and the sense of care in essentially putting old and young Tully in sort of opposite ends of the frame. Was that something conscious for you or did you just find it like a handsome frame?
1: I mean it's funny Uh, we've talked about photo boarding before Mm -hmm. Uh, so so when I shoot I go uh, about a month before we start shooting I go to all the locations and I bring stand-ins and I bring the script and we take a while we do this for weeks and we go to every location, and I take a camera, and I have all the film lenses marked out on it, and I have the stand-ins do the scene, and I direct them through the scene, and I shoot photos of all the shots, mm-hmm. and and I build it like a storyboard, because mm-hmm. I can't draw, and and it becomes this packet that every one of the keys gets. So when we show up on set, they have a photo of every shot with the lens, of in the location with the right. stand-in, so they know exactly what we're looking at, yep. and it's already been figured out. So Eric and I do that before, so that when we get to set, that brain work has been done, mm-hmm. and now it can become all about performance and actors. And if we have to break those rules, we break those rules. Mm-hmm. But we've done so much of that ahead of time that now on set, it's very freeing. We're not we're not even worrying about that. Do you like to rehearse? I do zero rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. I'm very fortunate, I get to work with brilliant actors, and my point of view has always been, I trust myself, I trust the actors, and our job is to create chemistry, create moments for the opportunity of chemistry, and i found that chemistry happens, it happens for a split second and then it vanishes, and when it happens, I want the camera to be rolling. Nothing's more heartbreaking to me than the idea of a magical moment happening in rehearsal. And, <laughs> right, right. Uh, and and so I do a table read. I'll do like two table reads because I want to hear it. And and I learned so much from, particularly on Diablo scripts. Uh, you mm. know, as you know, uh, having directed a Diablo script, yep. it's they're really hard. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very intricate. They're and and deceptively hard because the dialogue is not natural. Mm-hmm. Some of it's natural, but some of it is there. It's weird things to say. Yeah. And some of the best people who who have performed them have often been people from other places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you think about Ellen and, uh, and Michael and, uh, and Mackenzie and Shirley, none of them are Americans. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something to the fact that they're not from here. Mm-hmm. That so they, they find another way in. Yeah, they're wrapping their mouths around these sentences and figuring them out as mm-hmm. though they're foreign. And um, and so I want to hear it. And once I, once it sounds right, I know within five to ten takes we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we don't, then it's not their fault. It's something needs to be tailored in the script or something needs to be tailored in what I've given them to do. It's something, that, something to do with how I've seated them or told them to walk in the door or do a thing. Mm-hmm. That's what needs to change, not them. And then mm-hmm. I, I do my work.
2: Mm-hmm. And do you like having writers on set as a rule, or not necessarily?
1: I do, but Diablo never shows up. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's uh, uh, I can't remember. I don't remember. I, I'm trying to remember if she was on set on Jennifer's body. I don't remember. She was kind really of that. in
2: and out, but I always liked it when she was around. It's cool because she'll write, but like she was always writing.
1: Yeah, yeah she's yeah. always writing something
2: new. More
1: so, it uh, uh, even more with time. She shows up less on this. I think she showed up for a day. Uh, I feel this strange relay race. Mm-hmm. You know, she runs her leg and then she hands me the baton. Mm-hmm. And there's this trust that she knows I'm seeing what she's seeing. And I know to direct it no matter what. There's I on all three movies, there have been moments in the script that I do not understand. Mm-hmm. And I direct them anyway. Like I, I shoot them anyway mm-hmm. because I know at some point I will get it. Mm-hmm. And
2: what was that moment in Tully?
1: Oh man. Yeah. Let me think about this for a second. I mean, there's a funny one, uh, and this is going to make me sound really stupid, and maybe I just am. But uh, (laughs) I didn't realize that, you know, at one point Mark says about Ron uh, Livingston, he hates me. And Ron then has a moment where he says, he hates me about Mark. And I did not notice that until editing.
2: Really? Yeah, really. That's interesting. I
1: I know it's, no, it's it's not interesting. (laughs) It's idiotic. Um, But, uh, and the only way I can explain it is I'm more about music than the lyrics. I don't know the lyrics to any song. I I never listen to them. And I think sometimes dialogue, I'm thinking about it as, does the rhythm of the line work great? Yeah. I
2: mean, that makes sense to me.
1: Right. I uh I, I had a moment recently, um uh, my girlfriend we were listening to Lola and uh and I I I had no idea that there was a transgender narrative to <laughs> this <on>. song Lola. <laughs>
2: Even my eleven year old picked up on that. Yeah, and uh
1: and Liana's like, Yeah, it's about this. I was like, No, <laughs> And she's like, yeah, it is. And I said, I said, yeah, but nobody knows that. And she said, everybody knows that. And I said, hold on, we were in the car. I think we were driving to Disneyland of all places. And I said, uh, and I just started, we're going to call 10 friends. We'll see who knows. Everyone just like Amazing. dial after dial. And just like, I have to be kind of reminded of how deaf I am, um, but yeah.
2: That's kind of, uh, I love that. I love that. Um, well, so, I mean, talk a little bit about you do have this intense creative collaboration with Diablo which is just such a rare and beautiful thing to have and how do you find that you're interested in the same things do you find that what what draws generally what draws you into a script that that you haven't written
1: uh, I want to be surprised and I so seldom am mm-hmm. and I, I'm sure you feel the same thing I feel mm-hmm. like uh I often get to a movie. I, when I'm watching movies, I often feel like the first act is a real thrill because it's, it's something new, and by the second act, you're starting to go, oh, okay, they're going to go here, they're going to do this, they're going to do right. this, they're going to do that, and like, got it. And, right. and when it doesn't, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's the most beautiful thing. I mean, it's, it's why I love movies. And when yep. it catches me off guard, um, and not just with a twist, I mean, just in anything, it just, a character that reveals themselves to be a different human being than I thought they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Diablo always does that every one of her characters sw- moves on you, and every one of her plots moves on you, and if she's gonna make a movie about teenage pregnancy, um, it's not gonna be the movie you could ever imagine being about teenage mm-hmm. pregnancy. And uh and and on, on Juno I remember you, you start reading that script and you see Mark and you see Vanessa and you think, this guy I like and she seems like a pill and then halfway through you're in love with her and you mm-hmm. just hate Mark and uh yeah. she does these moves. Um and, and she and I are very different. You know, we grew up in different places, we're different people, we're the same age, and so we're experiencing things perhaps at the same time but somehow there's this connective tissue. It's like we're writing this diary together, mm-hmm. and but we're never in the same room.
2: I think it's a collaboration that to me really speaks to the power of kind of this cultural moment we're in right now where the idea that women's voices are necessary in a conversation that might include the survival of civilization because in some way by by you sort of taking on and taking in that voice it's it's kind of giving you access to a new kind of to a new um realm of storytelling to something that we haven't seen yet necessarily and i wonder if you feel like over the three films that you've do you do you consciously recognize that you're taking on female characters and female stories
1: i i think uh if that makes sense i've always been curious and confounded by women, and I've always deeply wanted to understand them, and I think that goes back to, you know, I think think when I was 16, um, my girlfriend was 26 years old, and I moved in with her while I was still in high school, and I was with her for seven years, and I think that probably began uh, a lifelong mission to try to understand women, and certainly, I think what you just said is true. If you want to make an original movie, make a movie about a woman. Uh, because the stories just have not been told. I mean, how do you feel about that?
2: Well, I mean, I I think a moment I've been waiting to happen is finally happening, but it's as important for me to tell women's stories as for me to see an interest on the part of men in women's stories, you know? And so I think your films have often just... uh, just leaned into like natural curiosity. And I just think that that changes your identity. It changes your consciousness. It changes your creativity in you, some
1: way. Do you ever feel, uh, and I'm so, I mean, this is something that I'm always curious about I feel like I meet uh, women filmmakers who are on both sides of the line. I meet women filmmakers um, who, who want to tell women's stories, and that's part of their mission as a mm-hmm. filmmaker. And then I've met women uh, who, when they get asked about it, even are like, "Oh, can you please stop? I'm not a woman filmmaker. I'm just a director. Can't mm-hmm. I just be a director like everybody else?" Uh, I mean, do you ever feel that that um, that dividing line? Or
2: oh, I mean, I I I do feel it, and I feel like a filmmaker who also happens to be deeply interested in women's stories. But I don't uh, feel like that's the law for me, you know um but back to you (laughs) um i'm curious to know in an evolution that you see for yourself because you've made a number of films in a short period of time which i admire so much and i'm kind of in awe of i'd be really curious to know for you looking ahead what are the things you want to try what are the things you're afraid of what are you wanting to tackle
1: I mean, the thing I'm afraid of, I think, is the thing that every director is afraid of, is when are they going to stop letting me do this? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's just... Uh, and I think every director has always felt this, but right now, it even feels th- like that, more so because of the the digital revolution mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and where audiences have been going and the kind of... The fascination with Marvel movies on one side and um episodic television on the other mm-hmm. thing you know both things that I have respect for, but it leaves this kind of vacuum in the middle of movies, the kind of movies that certainly made me want to be a director, mm-hmm. you know, and I remember when you won Sundance, and I remember like like that's what I want to be doing, mm-hmm. and
2: there's not as much
1: room it feels
2: like for those kind of films you have to you have to Carved that space out pretty early and with a lot of savvy, don't you think? Uh,
1: it, it's something to be navigated. Yeah. And I don't know, I remember, God, and this sounds like such an old-timey thing to say, but I just, I remember lining up for movies like I was going to see a rock show. Oh yeah, And that was the environment, and it was yeah. around the block. And we were there to see directors who were like rock stars yeah and we might as well have been outside cbgb's but instead you know yeah. we were outside the ua the regent or you know the westwood or 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 the the debt lemley's up on sunset and um uh and and watching you know you know it's that you know that moment where You start watching movies that make you know I'm going to be a fan of movies for the rest of my Mm -hmm. life and then you start watching a different kind of movies and you're like, no, I want to do that. I want to be a filmmaker. I want to make stuff like that. So I just hope there's always a home for movies like that. You know, my personal journey as a director, who the hell, I mean, like... Right, uh, right, you can't predict. I mean, there was a moment where I thought I just want to make people laugh. If I can make people laugh, I'll be happy. And then things change. And then, yep. the, you know, there's a moment where, you know, that first time as director, you're like, I want to hurt the audience. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it, I, a, I still <laughs> grapple with that, yes. But yeah, <laughs> but there's a
1: moment where you're like, maybe I'll hurt them. And it's like, <laughs> it's messed up, but that yep. thought goes to your head and yep. you experiment with that. Uh, so, I, I don't know. Who yep. knows who will be, you know, as directors. I, I just I just hope we get to make movies because I, I, I'm, I'm madly in love with movies.
2: Me too. Me too. Um, it's so nice to hear directors at the stage of the director's guild saying they're madly in love with movies it's so good um our time is up um but man what a pleasure
1: to talk to you yeah it's always a pleasure thank you
0: (laughs) thanks for listening to another dga q a if you'd like to hear more from director karen kusama check out episode 18 which features Ms. Kusama discussing her film, The Invitation, with director Gil Keenan. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.